Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. I want to tell you a story about a woman named Tracy. Tracy is now in her late 40s. She grew up in a Christian family, very conservative one. She and her parents were at church nearly every time the doors were open. When Tracy was about 12 years old, she began to notice that while most of her friends were starting to have crushes on boys, she never developed those feelings. Over time, she realized that the way they felt about boys, she actually felt about girls. And it took her five whole years, but Tracy eventually worked up the courage to tell her parents about all of this. And while the conversation with them went way better than she thought that it would, there was a very definitive, very intentional follow-up conversation with her mom afterwards that went something like this. Tracy, thank you so much for telling your father and I, but the most important thing for you to remember about all of this is that you should never talk about this with anybody else. Another guy named Ethan grew up in a small town in Nebraska where a Democrat had not been elected to office for over 30 years. He and his family attended the one Baptist church in his hometown, and it wasn't unusual for Sundays at that church to feel a lot more like campaign rallies than church services. The pastor would rant for 15 to 20 minutes some weeks about how liberals were out to ruin the country and how, quote, people like that don't belong in a country like ours. And then the same pastor would close his sermons by having the whole congregation recite the Lord's Prayer, the one about forgiving those who have sinned against us. This past year, Ethan turned on the news to see some of the footage from what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. And he did a double take when one of the cameras panned across the crowd there at the Capitol to show his pastor from his hometown church, the one who had his church recite a prayer about forgiving your enemies, holding up a homemade flag displaying the words, hang Mike Pence. There's also Elizabeth. Elizabeth's husband had been verbally and sometimes physically abusive towards her for seven straight years of their marriage. She wanted to tell someone about it. She knew she needed to. She knew she needed help. The only problem was that her husband had isolated her from most of her good friends, as abusers often do. And the only outlet she had in terms of someone she could tell were the leadership at her church. The only problem was that her husband was one of the deacons at the church. And on top of that, he owned an engineering firm made a lot of money and gave a lot of that money to the church every single year. So when she finally told the church leadership what was happening in her home and in her marriage, they said they wanted to talk about it and get back to her. When they got back to her, they had come up with what they felt was a solution. They offered to pay for Elizabeth to receive counseling for the abuse as long as they could pay for it in cash so that it couldn't be traced back to the church, and as long as she promised not to move out of the house with her husband or separate from him, and as long as she promised not to tell anybody about this particular arrangement. And then there's my story. When I was in middle school, there were a few guys in my youth group that I was encouraged to look up to. They were kind of set up as the model of what it looked like to follow Jesus in high school. I was told to be like them in every way that I could. So one year, I I was supposed to ride up late to a church camp that our summer, that our youth group attended every single summer. So I I met these guys at at one of their houses to drive up to the summer camp together. And, And that guy's parents, the house that we were at, his parents had already left for camp with the rest of the youth group. So we were all unsupervised. So before we left for camp, the guys that I was supposed to look up to in youth group, they invited over some of their girlfriends, they cracked open their parents' liquor cabinet, 
and encouraged me to sit in the living room while they all went to their respective bedrooms and hooked up with their girlfriends while I watched reruns of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And then we all drove up to Christian summer camp together. Oh, by the way, good morning, everyone. How are we? (laughs) Y'all doing good? I'm well. I wanted to start with those stories this morning because all of those are stories of people who at one point in their life decided to deconstruct their faith. And those experiences, the ones that I just mentioned, were central pieces of why they decided to go on that process. This morning we are beginning a new teaching series called Question Everything, how deconstructing your faith can help you keep it. Deconstruction, if you're unfamiliar with that term, no worries, it's not like a term from the Bible or anything, but just for you to know, it's a bit of a phenomenon in the West right now. The term deconstruction itself actually originated as an approach to philosophy and literature. So it describes the process of breaking down and critiquing certain writing and thinking piece by piece to analyze the validity of each component of it. But in more recent years, people have applied that concept, that practice, to faith in general and Christianity in particular. More and more people are choosing to deconstruct their faith in Jesus. This newer type of deconstruction is a little bit trickier to define, really, just because if you asked five different people what their definition of deconstruction is, you would probably get five slightly different answers. But in in the broadest and most generous sense, we might put it something like this. Deconstruction is the process of examining and re-examining your faith in order to decide which aspects of it to keep and which aspects of it to reject. That's what we're talking about when we use the term deconstruction. That's what most people mean when they use that term. They're choosing to take a raw look at their belief system and ask difficult questions of it. They're asking where it comes from and why they believe it and what the social impacts are of believing it, which means it's an especially common experience among people who grew up in and around the church or people who have spent substantial amounts of time in that environment. And really, deconstruction tends to lead people to a variety of different places as a result. For some people, it leads them to a renewed, refocused faith in Jesus as a result. For others, it leads to attempts at sort of reinventing what it looks like to be a Christian in the first place. And for others still, and and these stories tend to get the most headlines and retweets, it has led to an abandoning of faith in Jesus entirely. But whatever the outcome is, deconstruction has impacted and is impacting an awful lot of people in our society. One book that came out 10 years ago found that about 60% of people raised in Christian churches deconstruct their faith following high school. And that was really, I mean, that was 10 years ago. That's on the front end of the deconstruction movement and phenomenon that we're witnessing now. But considering that we have a large number of people here at City Church who grew up with some connection to the church and church culture, it seemed like doing a series around this topic would be a helpful thing for our church family. So if I had to guess... Chances are there are people in this room right now or listening online who are in the midst of deconstruction currently. Maybe you would use that word to describe it or maybe you wouldn't, but you right now are asking difficult questions about what you believe, why you believe it, and what the effects are of believing it. And if that's you, obviously this series is designed to be helpful to you. Others of you, on the other hand, might not be in that place right now. You're not currently questioning or struggling with what you believe, and that's fine. But I would encourage you still to pull up a seat and listen during this series for two primary reasons, really. First, just because you aren't currently or struggling, currently struggling or asking questions about your faith doesn't mean that you won't ever. I've been pastoring for a while now, and what I've found is that doubt and questions about our faith come for a majority of us at some point in our life. Maybe in a few months, maybe in a few years, maybe in a few decades. But for most of us, that day will come in some way, shape, or form. And it helps to be prepared for it when it does. 
But then second, even if you're one of the few for whom that day never comes, you never have a substantial wrestling and questioning your faith. Even if that day doesn't come for you, you will almost assuredly have the opportunity to walk with someone else through a season like that. So even if you're not listening for you, you are definitely listening for others. Maybe God has you here during this series to help become a better and better helper and listener to other people who question with their faith in substantial ways. Maybe he has you here learning how to, in the words of Jude from the New Testament, be merciful to those who doubt. So I I think there'll be something in this series for all of us, regardless of where we're coming from. So if you go to citychurchnox.com slash question, you can get a rundown of the different topics, the different things we're going to be diving into during each week of this series. We're going to look at five big questions that, at least in our experience, tend to be some of the most significant factors, significant questions, significant topics in people deciding to deconstruct their faith. So feel free to go there, maybe not right now, but later, and check out uh, what we're going to cover throughout this series. But what I wanted to do this morning is spend the majority of our time just talking about bit about deconstruction itself. I think one of the problems that we have right now is that most of the thinking and writing out there and podcasting on deconstruction tends to be fairly polarized. So if you just do some Googling around the word deconstruction, you'll find that there are entire camps of people that think that deconstruction is the enemy. That anyone who asks hard questions of the Christian faith is only out to destroy it, and they're only doing that because they want to sleep with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. So in their view, we need to view anyone who deconstructs or uses that terminology with immediate skepticism and suspicion, or just tell them to fall in line and get over their doubts. And then there are other camps out there that think deconstruction is an unmitigated good. It's something that everyone must do. If you're not deconstructing in their mind, you're just a blind follower and you're naive and no one should listen to you anyway. That's the landscape that we have currently around this topic. And as with most things in evangelicalism, anytime there are two loud camps yelling at each other and throwing rocks at the other side, the truth is often somewhere in the middle. Is it not? The truth is that deconstruction can be a healthy thing or it can be a very unhealthy thing. It really all depends on three things. It depends on what you're deconstructing, how you're deconstructing, and why you're deconstructing. That matters a lot as to whether it's something healthy or unhealthy. So that's what I wanna get into today. We'll start with that. So go ahead and turn with me in Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter 5, if you're here and don't have a Bible, you're welcome to just Google it. I'm sure you'll find it if you search for Matthew chapter 5. We've covered this passage that we're going to look at today several times before. But today I want to look at it maybe from a slightly different vantage point than before. Because in this passage, Jesus is basically laying out what he and his kingdom are all about. That's what he's talking about. But by doing that, he's also helping people understand how his kingdom and his way of life relate to the existing belief systems of his day. And I think that makes this passage a really helpful passage for how we think about something like deconstruction. So take a look with me, starting in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, quick question for us. Why would Jesus feel like he needs to start off by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets? Just go with your gut. What does that seem to imply? That people might be inclined to think that, right? 
So if you and I were having a conversation and I preface something that I was about to say with, okay, now don't think that I'm an Alabama fan, but what would you think that I was trying to get ahead of? That would indicate that I think that something I'm about to say is going to make you believe I might be an Alabama fan. And I would never in a hundred years, even if I was tortured repeatedly, ever want to come across as an Alabama fan. Hopefully that's clear. Hopefully you know that about me. Some claps from college students in the room. I love that. Uh, the game's coming, you guys. We just can't think about it. It's coming. We're going to play them. It's just we can't think about it. Can't get ahead of ourselves. But what that would indicate, right, is that I think something I'm about to say is going to make you think that about me. So I'm trying to get ahead of it, right? I'm trying to clarify what I'm about to say. Okay, I think it's pretty similar, though the stakes are higher here in Matthew 5, Jesus tells people, do not think that I'm coming to abolish the Old Testament law and commands, because he anticipates that some people might incorrectly draw that conclusion from what he's about to say next. Jesus knows that anytime you go after long-standing systems and structures and traditions, especially those that have become enmeshed with religion, that you're going to encounter some resistance. You're likely going to get accused of saying some things and thinking some things and believing some things that you actually don't say and you don't believe and you don't think. And I think that's sometimes the case when it comes to doubt and when it comes to deconstruction. Sometimes, in my experience, even when certain people set out to ask questions and deconstruct with the noblest of intentions, they get accused of having the worst possible motives. So Jesus starts by clarifying his own motives and his own intentions and what he's about to do. He says, do not think that I've come to tear everything down. But then he proceeds to essentially deconstruct some very popular, very widespread misunderstandings of what faith looks like. He disassembles people's notions of the scriptures in substantial ways. If you read through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you will see what I mean. He goes after a number of different facets of life in their day. Now, he goes about it in a number of different ways, and I want us to kind of see how each of these works. So let's talk for a second about the types of things that Jesus deconstructs in these chapters. Sometimes, Jesus deconstructs people's misapplications of the Bible. People's misapplications of the Bible. So we see this specifically in how he teaches things like murder and adultery. So he says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder and don't commit adultery. So you think that just because you haven't committed either of those two specific acts, you're in the clear with God, that God is good with you on those two topics. But then he says, but I'm here to tell you that the command not to commit murder is actually about ridding your heart of the type of anger and contempt that would lead a person to murder. That's actually what that command is about. Does the same thing with adultery. He says, I'm here to tell you that the command not to commit adultery is actually about ridding your heart of the type of lust and objectification of other people that would lead someone to something like adultery. In other words, Jesus goes after their misapplications of the Bible and he deconstructs those applications. Other times, Jesus deconstructs people's additions to the Bible. He deconstructs people's additions to the Bible. For instance, he says at one point, okay, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But here's the thing, the Old Testament never said hate your enemy. It said love your neighbor. But over the years, what had happened is that God's people had assumed that meant you could hate people who were not your neighbor. They added to what God said based on what they assumed that he meant. So Jesus deconstructs that too. He sets up a truer understanding of that commandment in its place, saying that they are to love even their enemies. Jesus deconstructs people's additions to the Bible. And this one's a little bit tricky, but other times still, Jesus deconstructs systems based on unbiblical ideas. He deconstructs systems based on unbiblical ideas. So he does this in how he talks about oaths. 
He says, you guys are really focused on, on making and keeping oaths that you made and following through on those oaths, but I'm telling you that the whole system of oath keeping is based on the assumption that you are sometimes gonna be dishonest with people. And that's a bad system, Jesus says. So I'm telling you, don't even participate in the system. Just live honest, integrity-filled lives in such a way that you don't need an oath to distinguish between your truth and your lies. It's better to just get rid of the whole system. He deconstructs systems that have been set up based on unbiblical ideas. So Jesus spends plenty of time doing some deconstructing of its own. Now you can call it that or not. I don't care about the terminology, but that is essentially what he's doing. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, plenty of other places in the Bible as well. He spends, he spends plenty of time deconstructing people's misapplications, people's misinterpretations, and people's additions to the Bible and resetting them on what God intended. Jesus is evidently under the impression that some things, even long-standing religious systems and traditions, need to be disassembled, taken apart, and sometimes torn down entirely when they are inconsistent with what God intended. One of the most helpful things for me, after I walked away from the church and came back, one of the most helpful things for me in reading the Gospels was when I realized that many of the things that I was frustrated and angered by within Christianity, Jesus was also frustrated by and angered by. Now, to be sure, there were some things that made me uncomfortable too, right? It wasn't all that. We weren't in complete agreement by a long shot. But it helped me realize, oh wait, maybe Jesus is angered by these things too. And that type of deconstruction, what we just discussed, is needed not only then, not only in Jesus' day, but continually for God's people throughout all of time. It is what the Old Testament prophets did any time God's people had forgotten and misunderstood how they were to live as God's people. This is what the reformer Martin Luther did when he spoke out against aspects of the Catholic Church of his day that did not line up with the Bible. It's what Martin Luther King did when he encouraged people to rediscover the Bible's clear teachings on justice and racial reconciliation. And we could go on with examples throughout church history, right? But we need people who come along in big ways and in small ways and deconstruct misguided beliefs and systems in order to return people to what God intended. So, for example, just to get specific for a moment, when we teach a biblical sexual ethic in our churches in ways that offers no grace or no hope to people who have failed to live up to it, there is deconstruction that needs to happen there. When we have presented the message of Jesus in such a way that it carries no word of challenge or rebuke for a white supremacist, there's deconstruction that needs to happen there. When our churches have provided cover for abusers without produ providing protection for the abused, there is deconstruction that needs to happen there. There are so many spaces within the American church where we need to intentionally differentiate between the things that the scriptures teach and the misunderstandings and misapplications of what the scriptures teach. So to that type of deconstruction, as a pastor, I say yes and amen. Let's do that always. In fact, that's a big part of what we do up here on Sundays every single week. It's what we do every time we open up the Bible, is that we read what they have to say, we talk about what it means, and then we try to differentiate what it means from what we might think that it means, based on our upbringing or our background or whatever the case might be. That is a type of deconstruction. But I think all of this brings up our next question, which is how are we deconstructing? How are we deconstructing? How are we going about it exactly? Or to ask it a different way, what standard are we using for our deconstruction? You see, anytime you critique something, you do it based on a standard, right? Otherwise, there's no way to critique. Otherwise, critique doesn't exist. This is true no matter what the subject matter is. So if you tell me that a certain type of coffee is bad, you can only say that if you have a standard in your head of what good coffee tastes like. Honeybee, obviously, down the street is what it tastes like. 
But you can only do that if you have a standard. You can only critique something based on a standard. Similarly, if you are going to say that something within Christianity is wrong or abusive or oppressive, you have to use some sort of standard for how those things should be. So the question is, what is the standard that you're using and is it a good standard? That's always the question we have to ask. Notice that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus uses the scriptures and God's heart as revealed in the scriptures as his standard for critique. Good deconstruction is when we use the Bible to critique the world's corruption of the church. That's good deconstruction. When we use the Bible to critique the world's corruption of the church. It's when we go, okay, the church is currently doing this, but the Bible says that. So we need to repent of this and do that instead. Does that make sense? That's good deconstruction. Bad deconstruction is when we use the world's values to critique the church. When we use the world's values to critique the church. It's when we say the church is currently doing this and society doesn't really like this right now, so let's do this instead. That's bad deconstruction. And listen, just in case I lost you there, when I say it's bad deconstruction, I don't just mean I'm a Christian pastor and I don't like it. That's not what I'm saying. I actually mean it's bad. I mean it's an ineffective, inconsistent way of evaluating right and wrong. Here's why. The world's standards are perpetually changing. The things that we think are good and right and true today are very different from the things we thought were good and right and true in the 1950s. And those things are very different than the things we thought were good and right and true in the 1800s. For instance, just if we could bring it down to a personal, relatable level for just a second. How many of you, I won't make you raise your hand, how many of you in the room have at least one grandparent or older family member who for the most part is an absolutely wonderful human being, but who occasionally says something that you're like, nope, can't say that. Can't think that. <laughs> can't believe that. At least not in a public setting when I'm around, you can't. Like, I, I think a lot of us have had that experience, right? But listen, if you don't think that our grandkids are going to at some point think that about us, you're being naive. They absolutely are. And listen, they're not just going to think that about traditional religious beliefs that we hold. They're going to think that about things that we believe because they're popular. Some of you don't believe me. It will happen as anyone in the room who's over 50 can tell you. It is going to happen, whether you think it is or not. And they're going to believe that based on things that we believe that are popular to believe in our society. The world's standards are perpetually changing. So here's all I'm trying to say. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Maybe it is not that wise to evaluate a faith and belief system that has been around for over 2,000 years using the standard of what our society currently does and does not like. Maybe that's not the most consistent standard for us to use for our critique. Maybe if this book and this belief system have stood the test of time across eras and continents and cultures and governments and ways of life, maybe it's just a little more reliable than what our world currently feels is acceptable this year. So I'm not saying we don't critique. Feel free to critique. I'm just saying let's use a consistent standard for our critique. How we deconstruct matters. I'll ask it a slightly different way. Are we deconstructing or are we demolishing? Are we deconstructing or are we demolishing? I think when some people use the term deconstruction, it's actually a little bit of a misnomer. I think they actually mean demolition. And there's a difference. I'll try to illustrate it to you this way. This was a helpful picture in my mind over the past few weeks. Uh, I'm a dad of a five-year-old, which means that a lot of my life is consumed by Legos. Like a lot of it. Like 50% of my life is consumed by Legos. Buying them, building them, stepping on them. Most of it is stepping on them. But a lot of my life consists of Legos. 
But our son loves to get like the kits of Legos that you can get at Target and they come with a booklet that shows you how to build something step by step. Has very meticulous steps. Sometimes the booklets are like that big. He's getting really, really good at it. But occasionally what will happen when he's building one of these kits of Legos is that he'll get one of the steps slightly wrong. So, so maybe he puts the wrong piece on too soon, or, or maybe he puts the right piece on, but it's like one notch over from where it's supposed to be, or it's turned sideways, or it's turned backwards, or something like that. And when that happens, what eventually happens as a result is that every step after that gets harder and harder because the pieces don't line up. The place where you need to put a piece is not in the right spot. And so you get further and further off the further that you go. And sometimes our son won't realize that until he's three or four or 25 steps down the process, right? Now, what used to happen when he was three or four is that when it started not working, we would just hear from a distance in the other room where he was building Legos, we would just hear, ah, and then we'd come in there and the whole thing was destroyed. Just broken to pieces, he had like slammed it on the table or threw it or something like that. Whole thing had come apart, he had to start completely over because he was frustrated that stuff wasn't working. But now what he's learning to do is that all he has to do when stuff starts not working is he has to meticulously trace back his steps to the one piece that was off, that got laid down wrong, that was backwards, whatever it was, fix that piece and then he can continue forward. He's learned as he matures to to think about it in that way, to approach it that way. Now, to me, that's a helpful picture of what it means to deconstruct well. It's not demolishing. It's not just taking a baseball bat to everything we believe and tearing the whole thing down because one aspect of it or a few aspects of it frustrate us. It's taking the time and the intentionality to trace our steps back to where the wrong piece got laid down, where we understood something wrong or or we applied something wrong or, or where someone misrepresented to us what following Jesus actually looks like, we set that piece right and then we continue on from there. Now, I'll be honest, some of us have a lot of steps that we need to trace back through and some of us have a few. But deconstructing in its truest sense and the true meaning of the word, what that word originally meant is always more helpful than demolishing. I think something I did wrong when I was younger and especially when I came back to the church after few years away, is that sometimes I showed up to conversations about faith with a baseball bat. I wanted to tear down and destroy anything that I thought looked like traditional faith. I wanted to call everybody a Pharisee. I wanted to call everybody legalistic. Everybody was self-righteous in my mind, except for me, obviously, which should have been a dead giveaway, but... I I just wanted to tear down anything that looked like conventional, traditional faith. In my head, everything was wrong and everything needed to be smashed to pieces so that we could start over. And now what I'm realizing as I get to know people who have walked in the faith for decades is that a lot of what I wanted so badly to tear down was actually really beautiful. Sure, maybe a a block got laid down sideways or one notch over from where it was supposed to be, and maybe that threw some other things off. But that doesn't mean the whole thing needed to be smashed to pieces. There may be some things wrong with the faith that was handed down to you by your parents or your grandparents or your pastor or your youth pastor or whoever it was. There may be things that need to be deconstructed. There likely are but that doesn't mean the whole thing needs to be tossed out. The church I grew up in had a lot wrong with it, like a lot of things wrong with it. But without some of the people that I got to meet in that church and watch them follow Jesus, I likely would have walked away from the faith and never come back. So part of growing up and part of maturing is realizing that not everything needs to be demolished because an aspect of it is off. Some things just need to be deconstructed. And I think that brings us to our last question, which is why are we deconstructing? Why are we deconstructing? I think to get anywhere with this conversation in this series that we're in, 
I think we have to acknowledge that part of the reason so many of us are inclined to demolish rather than deconstruct is because we're doing so out of a place of hurt. That's the elephant in the room when it comes to deconstruction, isn't it? That's what nobody wants to talk about. It's what nobody wants to focus on. A lot of us have been wounded in big ways and small by the church and church leadership and even just other self-proclaimed Christians who are in our life. And even if that hasn't happened to us, for a lot of us, it's happened to somebody we love. And often, not always, but often, that is what sets us on a trajectory towards deconstruction. And listen, I have no intention of downplaying those experiences at all during this series. I've been around the church and church world for a lot of years. I have seen firsthand the type of damage and harm that church people are capable of inflicting on others. The, the church has often been guilty of some very real, some very visceral harm towards people. We're gonna spend a whole week talking about that in this series. In fact, I know that for many of you who are here at City Church and have been for a while, part of what we've done is tried to walk with you as you reel and process and heal from a lot of those experiences. And I'm grateful that you've trusted us with that process. And I can understand how those types of experiences would make a person want to do some demolishing. I mean, that's what we do as human beings when we're hurt, right? We, we instinctively want to tear down and destroy anything connected to the thing that hurt us. That is a very understandable emotional response. But if you're in that place this morning, if you would just allow me to offer a, a quick word of personal counsel to you, not even as a pastor, just as a fellow human being who has been hurt by other human beings, it would be this. Dismissing or attacking Christianity will not make the hurt go away. I'm not saying it doesn't feel good to do. I'm just saying it doesn't help us heal. I'm saying it doesn't help us make any progress. You see, hurt is relational, not conceptual. Hurt is relational. Tearing down the concept of Christianity won't heal the wound caused by Christians any more than tearing down the concept of fatherhood will heal the hurt caused by your father. Because hurt isn't conceptual. It's not a concept. It's relational in its very nature. And, and I think so often what ends up happening in this process is when we start demolishing out of a place of pain, we just start swinging the bat at anything and everything connected to the thing that hurt us. And what we often forget is that there are people there that we are swinging at. There are people who have found tremendous purpose and hope and life in Jesus because that's what he offers. And when we just start swinging at things indiscriminately, often we end up hitting them and we never intended to hurt them, but we do. As the old counseling adage goes, hurt people, hurt people. When we are hurt and when we do not take the time to heal from that hurt, we usually end up hurting others as a response. But I think all of this leaves us asking the question, where do we take our hurt? Where do we take our hurt? What do we do with our hurt from other followers of Jesus, from church people, from church leadership, from churches in general? What do we do with it that is more healthy and more productive than using it to demolish? My take is that we bring our hurt to Jesus. And listen, that's, that's not a cop-out. There's, there's a reason I say that, and I'll tell you why. I don't know if we normally think about our faith this way, but no one has ever experienced as much hurt from religious people as Jesus did. It was the religious establishment of his day that harassed and critiqued him nearly every day of his life. It was their misinterpretations and misuses of the Bible that they used to stoke anger and fear and hatred and suspicion towards Jesus. 
And it was them, it was the religious establishment who quite literally handed him over to the authorities to be executed. It was their man-made traditions and additions to the Bible that they used to rig up fake charges against him so that he could be tortured and killed in one of the worst ways imaginable. No one has experienced as much hypocrisy from Christians as Jesus has. He sees through every lie, he sees past every facade, he knows every secret, and he sees the gap between each person and who they claim to be and who they really are. No one has been let down by Christians as much as Jesus has. On the most difficult night of his life, when all he needed for his best friends to stay up with him and pray for him, they fell asleep. A guy that he poured into for three years betrayed him. One of his closest friends denied even knowing him three times. And that's not to mention all of the hypocrisy, all of the disappointment that Jesus has witnessed down throughout history, all the horrible stuff that the church has been responsible for through the years, as much horrible stuff as you and I might have seen from Christians, none of us have seen the amount of stuff that Jesus has. And do you know what's crazy about that? Given all of that, given everything he knows, given everything that he's seen, Jesus still thinks that he is the hope of the world. And he still thinks that his way of life is the only true way to live. And he still thinks that his church can be his representatives to a broken world. Francis Collins puts it this way. The pure, clean water of spiritual truth is placed in rusty containers, i.e. flawed human beings like you and me. And the subsequent failings of the church down throughout the century should not be projected onto the faith itself as if the water had been the problem. Some of what you and I have seen portrayed as Christianity in our lives might indeed be ugly and unjust and broken and harmful. I don't doubt that one bit. I've seen it but it might just be that those are problems with the containers and not the water. And the answer might just be in learning to differentiate between the two rather than thinking they're both the problem. So what we're gonna do during this series is we're gonna dig into some of the biggest questions that people have about what Christianity has become in our world. We're gonna try to learn to differentiate between the rusty containers and the water itself. We're going to walk through some things that Christians really need to repent of and some things that they honestly don't. And we're gonna truly question everything, including many of our questions themselves. But as we conclude, I just want to make two requests of you this morning. I want to make two requests of two slightly different groups of people in the room. First, to those of you who are here and are more inclined to look at people who deconstruct with skepticism and suspicion, if that's you, if you hear someone asking hard questions or critiquing aspects of Christianity and your response to that is to get angry or defensive or frustrated, I just want to ask you to reconsider that posture. I would ask that you not write people off simply because they seem to be tearing stuff down, just like I would hope that we wouldn't have written Jesus off just because he seemed to be tearing stuff down. Instead, I would ask that you listen, that you would be willing to try and understand the critiques before you argue with them, and that we might be willing to consider that if there is critique from a person and it's coming from a genuine experience that they had, it might just be that there is something there worth critiquing, even if the critique is poorly presented or is coming from a place of anger or hurt. And then if you are in the room and you're more inclined towards critiquing Christianity, if that's your inclination as a human being, I, I would just ask this of you. Would you be willing to consider that maybe the problem is with the containers and not the water? Would you be willing to explore that maybe the problem is not with the message of Christianity itself, but rather in the imperfect applications of that message? Would you be willing to consider that all of us in the world are broken people doing our best to minimize the damage that our brokenness has on others? 
And would you be willing to question everything with us for the next five weeks, including some of your questions and assumptions themselves? So I just wanted to end here. Um, Band, you guys are welcome to come on up if you want to. Um, As I was just sort of thinking through this teaching over the past few weeks, um, I didn't really know why at the beginning, but the story of the prodigal son kept coming to me. I kept thinking about the story of the prodigal son. A lot of you guys have been around church. You know the story. Some of you may not know that there's two brothers in the story, not just one. There's two sons in the story, not just one. But this morning, I think as I was just kind of listening to the band um, go through the next song that we're about to sing, I think Brandon's going to talk a little bit about, I, I, I think I realized why I kept thinking of that story. In the story of the prodigal son, there were two sons that both needed to do some reconsidering in terms of their relationship with the father. So the first son, the son that that the story draws its name from, he, he kind of assumed the generosity of his father. He took advantage of his father, and he ran off and enjoyed the gifts from his father while not wanting anything to do with his family. I think that's a picture of deconstruction. We're going to get into it more in the series, but I think some of the things we don't realize is that some of what our society considers good and true and right is there because there were people in our nation's history that actually had some understanding of Christian morality. It wasn't perfect. A lot of it was very broken. But I think we realize that some of our understandings of justice and goodness and righteousness actually come from Christianity, even if we don't want to acknowledge that that's the source. And I think sometimes that's a picture of deconstruction is we take the things that the Father has given us, even down to just common grace experiences that we enjoy in everyday life, and we think that it's somehow right for us to enjoy the gifts without maintaining a relationship with the giver. And then the other son had some reconsidering he needed to do too, right? Because his understanding was that all the good things were his simply because he performed well and kept the affections of the Father coming towards him. And both of them had a misunderstanding of what it meant to be in relationship with the Father. Both of them had to come home in the story. Now, one of them does, and one of them we're left at the end of the story wondering if he ever comes back. But both of them have some reconsidering they need to do about the love and the relationship of the Father. And so I don't know if that connects with anybody in the room. I know it does for me because I feel like I have been both sons at different points in my life. But maybe the consideration for us this morning is that all of us have a little bit of coming home that we need to do. And maybe all of us have actually misunderstood what a relationship with the Father is all about. And maybe the reality of who the Father is and what he wants in terms of a relationship with us is far better than what any of us could think up. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Um, God, thank you for the gift that they are in understanding what life looks like and understanding who you are and understanding how you relate to us. God, for all of us in the room, I would imagine there's, there's at least a little bit of coming home that we need to do. Um, maybe there's ways where we have run as hard and as fast as we can away from anything that looks like Christianity, anything that looks like faith, anything that looks like belief. because we just think there's nothing good there. Maybe we've been hurt. Maybe we've been disillusioned. Maybe we've been disappointed. And maybe it's just prompted us to to run as fast as we can away from it all or to take a a baseball bat to it all and, and just try to destroy it. But God, for, for those of us in that place, I, I wanna ask that maybe we would consider this morning if there's a different way forward. 
God, that we would consider that maybe, maybe many of the things that we've been hurt by, many of the ways that we've been mistreated, many of the ways that we've been let down, and that maybe, just maybe, you know what that feels like too. And so God, I, I wanna ask this morning that even if it's small, even if it's, if it's a two-word prayer that we offer up to you, that we would be willing to bring our hurt to you. And to not try to take it out on anything and everything that hurt us. So God, I, I, I wanna ask that you would give some of us in the room the boldness to do that for the very first time. Maybe the prayer we need to offer up is, uh, Father, I'm hurt, would you meet me here? And I'm crazy enough to believe that he will. I wanna acknowledge that healing takes time. takes effort. Sometimes it takes people rallying around us in helpful ways. But healing is possible, whatever it's from. And God, for, for others of us in the room that maybe um, feel threatened or feel defensive or feel angered by anybody that would ask hard questions or anybody that would wrestle with difficult beliefs or anybody that would critique aspects of the faith that we all hold dear. I, I pray that this morning we would realize uh, you, you don't need us to defend you. And so God, would you maybe help us to see the people that question, the people that doubt, and the people that deconstruct, would you help us to see them as people that need to be loved and not as enemies that need to be condemned? Such a more helpful response. And I wonder if we wouldn't see person after person reconsider their take on the whole thing if we would just take the time to listen and just take the time to say, I understand. And just take the time to ask, how can I help? So God, my prayer, just like we began with, is that we would become a community of Jesus followers that embody that counsel from Jude where he says, be merciful to those who doubt. And when people walk in these doors or people show up to our life group or people develop a friendship with us at work or at class or whatever the case may be, that they would find a follower of Jesus that is willing to be merciful, that is willing to understand, that's willing to hear them out. And God, I wanna pray that you would bring a whole lot of people home through all of these efforts. That your spirit would bring a whole lot of people home to experience the true goodness and affections of the Father. God, that's a work that only your spirit can do. And so I just ask in humility that you would do it, beginning now, through our conversations, through our relationships, through the way that we live. Holy Spirit, come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.